you know, sometimes in, uh, sometimes in life, you walk out of one mess and straight into another. Uh, you leave one tough life experience behind, only to discover there's another one staring you in the face or lurking just around the corner. And you're glad that's over, whatever that was. And you wouldn't want to go through that again. And yet, in what seems like no time at all, and through no fault of your own, you find yourself in another tight spot. And your back's up against the wall. And you're dealing with another predicament, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, relationally. Or let me offer a slightly different scenario. You've just walked away from one problem straight into another, but the really frustrating thing is that the previous problem keeps coming back to haunt you. You just can't get rid of it. Well, I'm not sure if if any of that resonates or, or connects with someone this morning, but as we pick up our story of Moses again, the Israelites are about to find themselves in that place. It's a sort of uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire type experience, walking away from one predicament straight into another. And as we relive their story in Exodus 13 and 14, I hope and pray there's going to be something here today for someone who's up against it at the moment. And you're not entirely sure where to turn, and you're not entirely sure how you're going to deal with your current predicament. If you have a Bible, please uh, do turn to Exodus 13. It's page 70 in the, in the Red Pew Bibles. In the last week, uh, the Israelites, we left them embarking on a journey towards freedom. Life in Egypt had been bad, like really awful. But after God's dramatic intervention into their lives and into their bleak situation via 10 devastating plagues, their oppressors, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, finally gave in and finally said, just go. And so they released all 600,000 plus of them. And a new day had dawned. Or had it. Because in a matter of days, they found themselves in what probably looked like and felt like an even bigger mess. Standing in front of them, in front of this vast people group, which could have been up to about 2 million people. 600,000 plus Standing in front of this vast people group was a sea. And bearing down upon them was the Egyptian army, sweeping in for the kill. They were, if you like, caught between the rock and a hard place, or between the devil and the deep red sea. So what was going on here? Why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? Well, let's be clear about something, and it's this. God had led them into this situation. Please hear this bit. God had led them here. Look at verse 18 of chapter 13. God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. Look at verses 21, 22. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. He was their constant guide. They can't have taken a wrong turn. Finally, look at verse 8 of chapter 14, because it turns out 
that the Lord had hardened Pharaoh's heart once again, causing him to change his mind, round up his troops, set off in hot pursuit, and eventually catch up with the liberated Hebrew slaves. This is no accidental predicament. God's led them into this. The Israelites were in this place facing these significant obstacles because God had brought them here. Now, although there are times whenever we find ourselves in a tight spot and we find ourselves with our backs up against the wall because of some poor choices we have made and unwise decisions we have taken, this is not one of those times. These people had been obedient. They had followed God's lead, done exactly what God had said, and yet found themselves in a mess, found themselves in a difficult place. And I don't want to make too much of this or say something that's irrelevant to the text, but I think it's probably worth stressing and restating a recurring reality of Scripture that obedience to God And a desire to follow him doesn't always mean you're going to have life easy or that you're never going to face really difficult problems. In fact, the complete opposite is probably going to be true. And let me give you two reasons why God sometimes leads us into difficult places. And there's some of you here this morning and you are in a difficult place. And the whole idea that God has led you into this is even hard to process or stomach. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. One, because he's got so much more to teach you. And as we often know, it's through the hard and the difficult times, it's via the big challenges of life that you learn the most. And some of you are learning an awful lot at the moment. We don't always like it. We don't always want it. But all I can say is it's the way it tends to happen. Secondly, God sometimes leads us into certain situations in order to work out his purposes. The reasons for which God is clear about, but which initially leave us frightened and confused. God's working out his purposes, but you have no idea why or how. And this incident in Exodus 13 and 14 is a classic example of this. The purposes of God in these moments are actually spelt out in verse 4 of chapter 14. Have a look at it. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. That's the Israelites. But listen to this. Here's God's purpose. I will gain glory for myself. Or I will be honored, says God, through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know... Here's my purpose in this. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Now, during the past couple of weeks, if you've been here, we have looked at Exodus chapter 7 to 12 and discovered that God's purpose in the 10 plagues was to reveal who he was. That was the reason we said God sent those 10 plagues. It was so that Moses, so that the Israelites, so that Pharaoh, so that the Egyptians would know who God was. And therefore, you kind of think, God, was that not enough? Was there still some doubt regarding your identity? Is the next event, you know, the whole Red Sea episode, was that not a bit excessive, God? Why was that needed as well? And those, I think, are good questions. They're fair questions. After all, 
The firstborn in every Egyptian family was dead. Is further loss of life really necessary, God? But as you engage with this text, you discover that Pharaoh's persistence is unrelenting. In a sense, he digs his own and he digs his army's own grave. Pharaoh was given the chance to end the conflict, but he just couldn't let it go. He couldn't acknowledge God. He couldn't step back. Instead, he continued to stand against God, continued to stand against the people of God, and therefore God had to dramatically end all further negotiations once and for all and establish his reputation in no uncertain terms. And for many people, there's a very real tension here in this this incident. I recognize this. And you may be one of those people that have a real problem with this. There's this tension between God's love and God's mercy on one hand and God's righteousness and his judgment on the other. How do you hang on to that tension? God of love, God of wrath. Reality is evil must be judged. Something must be done about it. God cannot turn a blind eye to it. He cannot overlook it indefinitely. Miroslav Volf writes in this great book of his, Exclusion and Embrace. It's not about this story specifically, but it's about this issue generally. I think these are interesting and very helpful words, although they're quite dense, I realize that, but just go with me. A non-indignant, non-aggrieved God would be an accomplice in injustice, deception, and violence. It didn't matter to God. He'd just be an accomplice to it. God will judge. Not because God gives people what they deserve. Here's an interesting spin. But because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Hmm. Pharaoh resisted. Pharaoh kept resisting to the end, and therefore evil had to be dealt with and dealt with decisively. And as we all know, it was dealt with decisively. But let's not go there just yet. Back to the story. Because although God is clear on what he's doing here, God's absolutely clear on his purposes here, the people are scared senseless. Have a look at verse 10 of chapter 14. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. I think it's really interesting. Look at this with me. That when they looked up, no longer did they see the pillar of cloud or fire which was always there, always present according to the previous chapter. Whenever the children of Israel looked up, God's physical, tangible presence was staring them in the face. But this time when they looked up, they were consumed by their circumstances. They lost their focus. They took their eyes off God. It's a bit like Peter in the walking on the water incident in the New Testament. But who could blame the Israelites? 
I mean, humanly speaking, this looked ominous. And although God was there, and although God had already done so much for them in liberating them, this particular situation, these specific circumstances did not look good. And so fear kicked in. Which is a reality we all must deal with at some time in our lives. And I think if we're honest, we can identify so much with these people because even though we know that God is always with us, and even though we're all convinced that he is a constant presence in our lives, we say those words that he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. We even quote verses like he is an ever-present help in trouble. Even though we know all that, let's be honest, we get scared at times. We lose focus and we worry like mad. And so here, in this place, as God's people look around, they're terrified. And so they turn on Moses, which is disappointing but not entirely surprising. And using a bunch of quick-fire, sarcastic questions, they voice off to him. Here's what they say. It's all there in the text. Moses, weren't there enough cemeteries in Egypt so that you had to take us out here in the wilderness to die? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Back in Egypt, did we not tell you this would happen? Didn't we tell you just leave us alone in Egypt? We're better off as slaves in Egypt than as corpses in the wilderness. Now, there was a hint of truth in their comments. Their sarcasm had a reference point. Back in chapter 5, they had warned Moses and Aaron to back off and leave them alone. Back in chapter 5, that actually said, listen, we wish God would just judge you two brothers because you've made us obnoxious to the Egyptians. Just wish you'd back off. And yet, the greater, bigger, and far more important reality was this. These people desperately wanted out of Egypt. They desperately wanted to be set free. They hated Egypt. It was a miserable place. And we know how much they hated Egypt because of something God said to Moses beside the self-igniting desert plant. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. These people wanted out. They got out. But you see it the first sign of difficulty. See it the first sign of hassle. Rather than trust God, rather than respect their leadership who had done so much for them and brought them so far, they pointed the finger, they complained, and they played the blame game. And as you read the rest of their story in subsequent chapters, and we'll discover more as we go along with this series, this became their default response. Whenever things didn't go their way, whenever they faced challenges, whenever their backs were against the wall, whenever they were in a tight spot, whenever they faced another predicament, what did they do? They whinged. They became constant, compulsive, chronic complainers. And it must have been so hard to listen to. For Moses. For Aaron. For God. Complaining, you see, does a whole lot of things, doesn't it? One, does your head in. Two, sucks the life clean out of you whenever you just meet people who complain all the time. And if you have to keep listening to it and keep listening to it, what it actually reveals is, do you know something? Here is a group of people who have lost their trust in God. 
God has done so much for these people by Exodus 14. God's going to continue to do amazing chapters for these people in the chapters that follow. God had proved who he was. God had proved that he could be trusted. But either they kept forgetting that, they kept doubting it, or they just got consumed by their current circumstances. And so at the first sign of trouble, or whenever the going got tough, they didn't turn to God. They just shifted into great mode. Rather than recognize who God was and recall what God had done for them, they allowed the immediate, the here and now, to dictate everything. If they'd expressed their concern, well, that would have been okay. If they'd expressed their concern, it's really good, it's perfectly legitimate to share your concerns with others regarding certain situations. But picking up on Philippians 2, the advice of Paul to us as Christians, we are to do everything without complaining. Which is countercultural. Whenever you live in a context, a society, and in a culture that says you should complain about everything if you get the chance. Back to the story. Because look at how Moses responds. And I think this is brilliant. Verse 13. Because it must have been so tempting for Moses to come back at their sarcasm. It must have been so tempting for Moses to pick up on their negative attitude. He must have wanted to defend himself. Because these were unfair accusations that were being leveled at him. And yet what does he do? As a wise leader, he speaks powerfully into their fear and into their confusion and into their uncertainty. And he says three things. Here are the three things Moses says to these people. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see how God will deliver you today. Now, when you think of it, this is not only inspiring and encouraging. This is an amazing declaration of faith. Why? Moses hasn't been told in advance what's about to happen. Do you know the whole parting of the water thing? Moses doesn't know that's about to happen. He's stuck there, staring at a sea, staring at an army bearing down on them. Staring, or not so much staring, listening to a bunch of people moaning at him. No idea sees about to part. And so as he looks at it, His confidence in God is remarkable. Moses, unlike the Israelites, had clearly learned to trust God. And therefore, he was able to say to these frightened people, look, the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again, which is an incredible statement of belief. Moses somehow knew God's not going to abandon us now. Not now, not in this place. He's going to intervene. He's going to do something. Despite the fact that humanly speaking, things, the situation, your circumstances, the presenting problems look menacing. Listen, God is not going to abandon us now. And I find that a massive challenge. Because I tend to do the complete opposite of this or that. See, I get scared. I get restless. I start running all over the place like a chicken with no head. I actually try to sort everything out by myself. I do the complete opposite of what God tells me to do. Moses reflects a deep faith. 
he reassures the Israelites, listen, God's going to fight for you. Whereas I, I allow what I'm looking at, what I'm faced with, what I'm frightened by to dictate my response and my attitude and my mindset rather than just say, God, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this mess. Moses was urging the people, listen, let God be God. Trust God. Reflect on what God can do in the face of what you're unable to do. Develop an inner calm, which doesn't come through a lack of troubles, but instead is derived from a steady, deep reflection on the way God has acted and intervened to date. It's a bit like, or else it's a lot like Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. Because look at what Moses actually says to them, which is totally ridiculous after he says those three things. He says, listen, you need only to be still. So that when you face difficulties, when you wrestle with issues, you actually have this inner calm, not through some self-made confidence or because you're the most composed person in the face of disaster or because you've seen it all before, but simply because you've reached a place where you just say, okay, God, I'm going to trust you. And then it happened. God fought for the Israelites, just as Moses had promised. And using the basic components of creation, the pillar of cloud, fire, using wind, using water, using dry land, using light, using the cover of night, God divides the sea to let the Israelites walk across. And God throws the Egyptian army into total confusion. God caused the wheels to come off their chariots. God forced them to retreat because they recognized that he was fighting for the Israelites. And finally, God caused the walls of water to fall back into place so that the Egyptians were drowned. Every single one of them, not one survived, according to verse 28. And that day, according to verse 30, it says, The Lord saved Israel. On that day, salvation and destruction got meshed together. <laughs> the sea of protection from evil was also the sea of destruction for the evil forces. God saves, God judges. That is our God. And as the Israelites look across the shore, it says they see dead bodies just covering the seashore but more than that they also see the power of God which leads to this response in verse 31 they feared the Lord and put their trust in him now this was a very different fear from verse 10 very different fear this was an awestruck, overwhelmed sense of wonder at what God has just done. This was about a deep respect. And what did it prompt? Worship. Sung praise. And you can read the words of their song in Exodus 15. Here are some of the lyrics. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And the answer to their question, who is like you, 
no one. There is none like you. And the crossing of the Red Sea is one of those stories which I know we're all familiar with. I also recognize it's a story that prompts much discussion and debate. But at its heart, it's a story of transition. There were three transitions that happened. The transition from fear to awe, from doubt to faith, and from cries of despair to shouts of joy and worship. And my prayer for each person here this morning is this, that you will make those transitions whenever you find yourselves hemmed in. Whenever you find yourself in another mess, whenever you're scared, you will transition from fear to awe, from doubt to faith, from cries of despair to songs of worship. So where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? And do you need to hear these words? Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Watch what God will do. And you need only be still. Let me pray. Father, I want to pray for anyone who's here this morning who finds themselves with their sort of backs up against the wall. Who just seems to have kind of been going from one problem to another. One difficult situation to another. Very often through no fault of their own. And they're confused and they're frightened and they're wondering what's going on. And often they become consumed by their circumstances. And so God, into many people's lives this morning, I just pray those words. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Watch what God's going to do. Because God has something more to teach you. God is working out his purposes in your life. And you need only to be still. And know that he is God. Not just know it intellectually. But know it practically. Emotionally. And at a very deep. Spiritual and heart level. And God, if some of us find ourselves in tight spots because of some unwise decisions we're making, some poor choices we're taking, then I pray God we'd be honest before you about that. And that you would forgive us for those choices and decisions. And you just lead us on with you our constant guide, our constant presence, 
our constant help. We worship you. Almighty God, there is none like you.